It is the Lockdown Bengals Podcast with your hosts, Joe Goodberry and Jake Lisko. Find us on Twitter at Joe Goodberry and at Jake underscore NFL. Please like, subscribe, and share as we try to grow this community and pump out daily Bengals content just for you. What up, Bengals fans, and welcome to another episode of the Lockdown Bengals podcast. We're getting closer to game day. We've got crossover Wednesday under our belts. You have an idea of what to expect from the San Francisco 49ers. And the Bengals returned to practice today. They were off, of course, Monday, Tuesday after their game. We'll get you the updates on the injury situations, including Cordy Glenn, Joe Mixon, and A.J. Green has his walking boot off and talked to media for the first time in over a month, two months. We'll get into that today. Then we'll start to talk about what San Francisco did in week one against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers a little bit and what maybe scares us or what excites us about the the matchup in week two in the Bengals home opener. We're not going to get too deep into the matchups today. We'll get to that tomorrow. And then in segment three, we've got a few questions that we're going to take from our lovely listeners who sent us some great questions this week. Now you're locked on Bengals lead story. I'm Joe Goodberry with Jake Lisko. A.J. Green is out of his boot, and he actually said he ran yesterday. So we are on progress, on time. I think the Bengals should see him back. It sounds like he's aiming for that Monday night game versus the Pittsburgh Steelers, but this is big for an offense that threw the ball 51 times in Seattle and threw it well. Andy Dalton was 418 yards. This is without A.J. Green. You get A.J. Green back, you get him healthy. Even You could hear the excitement in his voice. You could hear it in Tyler Boyd's voice when he says when A.J. Green gets back, You'll stop talking about the Browns. My favorite thing about the quotes coming from AJ Green today was that he talked about how exciting it was for him to watch Zach Taylor making adjustments on the sideline and how excited he is to get into this offense. I think he also said he could play another eight years in a Zach Taylor offense. That's how excited he is to get out there and show us just how deadly this Bengals offense will be with this number one target back. And there are a few times against Seattle where it showed up where you're like, you know what, AJ Green makes that play. At least two different plays that I can think of that went to John Ross or Tyler Boyd where A.J. Green is just special enough to make a play where those guys, as good as they were, aren't A.J. Green. Yeah, and the guy playing in his place was undrafted free agent Damian Willis, who's a rookie and had a solid game for your first game ever. But there were two or three throws to him where I thought, yeah, Green comes down with that. Green gets extra space. And not only that, Green probably pulls the attention. When I'm watching the film recently, the last couple of days, it started sliding. The, the coverage started sliding towards John Ross in that second half and then the fourth quarter. And I thought, this is where you need Green, or at least where Green would take advantage of this coverage if it starts tilting towards Ross. So we're very excited to hear that A.J. Green's out of a boot. It sounds like he did some zero gravity running on the underwater treadmill. In addition to apparently just some straight up running like Joe mentioned, we're looking forward to the updates there. Of course, he didn't practice today. Neither did Joe Mixon, who is dealing with that ankle sprain. Cordy Glenn remains in the concussion protocol for what is this now, the fourth week? And Tyler Eifert had a Veterans Day off. Jesse Bates, who got banged up on that collision with DK Metcalf, was limited with a wrist injury. Clayton Fedgelin was limited with his leftover ankle injury from preseason, but he played last week, so he should be good to go. Travion Williams made a limited return to practice, and Auden Tate went full 
And Auden Tate, while that is not a starter, I think he makes a difference in the game where Farrell Cooper didn't. So if he's back, that does matter. Yeah, I don't know what Farrell Cooper really did last week. He had a couple of uh, blocks on special teams, but besides that, he ran some routes. He didn't get out there on punt or kick return duties. I, I would think Auden Tate is probably active over Cooper. And maybe the issues we had with Willis, maybe Auden Tate gets in there and, and grabs some of those contested balls. For San Francisco today, Nick Bosa was the big DNP, but he's still dealing with a high ankle sprain the same way Clayton Fedulam is. I think he is for sure going to play. I think this is something like a Veterans Day off. He was dominant even on that ankle injury against Tampa. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in a few minutes. Tevin Coleman, of course, was injured last week. He's expected to be out a little bit. He didn't practice either. And Joe Staley had a Veterans Day off. Jimmy Ward, the only other notable name for the 49ers, and he was limited today with a hand injury. I would expect all these guys but Coleman to play, and while Coleman is a significant injury in that San Francisco getting a running game going against the run defense we saw last week is unlikely, I I think the threat that we're all worried about is George Kittle and those offensive tackles neutralizing the Bengals' pass rush. Yeah, overall, it looks like the 49ers are fairly healthy. Um, obviously, we can't say the same about the Bengals, but I do think the Bengals getting back Travion Williams, uh, potentially Joe Mixon. If you can have uh, three guys at, at running back that you feel comfortable with, uh, unlike last week where it was Samaj P. Ryan, who was just picked up from waivers uh, as your third running back. You could see they didn't go to him, even though Mixon went down. P. Ryan got one play on, on, on offense, and many people questioned, should he have been the big back on that fourth and one that the Bengals failed on? Yeah, the only play he was out there for was a play where the Bengals wanted to have two running backs out there, and that was the ball that squirted out of Andy Dalton's hand, unfortunately. Yeah, it's kind of funny that they waited until Joe Mixon was out of the game, because I don't remember any plays with Mixon and Geo in the backfield together in the first half of the the Seattle game. Uh, Maybe we'll see that this week. Maybe if Mixon is still somewhat limited, we'll see a bigger role for Geo, who I thought had a decent game. A couple screen passes, and then the only good run of the day, I believe, was for 11 yards, was by Giovanni Bernard. The one time an offensive lineman got to the second level, Gio went for 11. Actually, there was one other play earlier in the game, too, for Mixon. I think it was a six-yard run where one of the interior guys, I can't remember if it was Hopkins or if it was Miller, got to Bobby Wagner and and managed to spring the back for a six-yard run. This has been your Cincinnati Bengals lead story on September 12th from Locked on Bengals. Now let's take a moment to recognize our first sponsor of the episode, and that's Vivid Seats. Perhaps you've heard of them. They're an online event ticket marketplace dedicated to providing you tickets to live experiences. It could be at a concert. It could be at a sporting event, which is probably what we're talking about here as Bengals fans, or it could be at the theater. Who knows? They have great prices, and it's easy to buy tickets on the app, and you can get 10% to 60% credit on all purchases if you use the app for the month of August. So make sure you go to the App Store and look up Vivid Seats app. Fans are automatically enrolled in the Vivid Seats Rewards Loyalty Program. Every purchase is backed by a 100% buyer guarantee. And they have a promo code. Enter KICKOFF at the checkout to receive a discount of up to $100. I'll take a $100 discount. Me too. We'll be right back. Well, the power just went out at my house, Jake. We got some thunderstorms here, and uh, it looks like the power went out on the 49ers passing offense in week one versus the Buccaneers. That must have been a wild game. I did not watch it. You know, I got most of my information from Twitter, the Red Zone channel, and then the guys from the Lockdown 49ers podcast. But I'm over here looking at PFF numbers, and the worst 
passing graded team is the Buccaneers at 43.6, but the second worst is the San Francisco 49ers at a 43.8. So that's way down there. Down there, if you want to compare it to the Bengals, a 69.9 for Andy Dalton is 13th best. You know what's fun about the PFF overall team grades right now is the second and third worst teams overall for PFF are Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Wow. Fun That's fact. The, the worst teams, huh? Worst teams in the NFL, just ahead of, I guess, Miami, obviously, is the worst. Of course, right. But right. Let's, that's, that's expected. Exactly, yeah. So San Francisco comes into this game with a good offensive line, a very shaky quarterback, very shaky wide receivers, average, I would say, running backs, and Mm -hmm. a very, very, very good tight end, the likes of which the Bengals will not see again this year, unless Mark Andrews takes a step. I mean, Mark Andrews is good, but he's not George Kittle. No, Kittle's a freak. He's the best. He's maybe the best blocking tight end in the league. And then he's a freak athlete, and he's big, and they scheme him open constantly, and they'll throw him 10 to 15 targets a game. No problem. He had the most receiving yards ever by a tight end last season for the 49ers. And he had a pretty quiet week one against Tampa, so maybe there's something in that blueprint that the Bengals can pull out and say, okay, this is how we can limit George Kittle because you're not going to stop George Kittle, much like we used to say, Chad Johnson, you're not going to stop him, you're gonna, you know, or it, you know, whatever it is, the weapon of your choice. That is George Kittle for the 49ers. But the big question is, can Jimmy Garoppolo get it together? He had a terrible week one. Reports Mm -hmm. have been that coming off his knee injury, he hasn't been very comfortable through those five interceptions in a row or whatever it was in training camp. And we're all hoping he throws five interceptions in a row to Cincinnati and it just becomes a 49-0 game like that one Bears game that one time. They had five interceptions versus everyone in the NFC North at one time. But I think we covered that before in a previous podcast. I'm also going through their grades here. They are the number one pass-blocking team through week one. Yeah, an 85.7. Were, Next team is an 80. They were great in that regard, which really reveals how bad Jimmy Garoppolo was given exactly. the protection. Mike McGlinchey, though, looks like he's going to be a longtime starter in the NFL mm. at right tackle. And their left tackle, Joe Staley, is... He's been good for a very long time. There is a potentially good matchup for the Bengals, though, with Geno Atkins on the interior, where if it's not like Marshall Yonda in his prime, you feel good about that matchup. Still, even with the aging Geno Atkins, even if you think he's lost a step, who is it, Lakin Tomlinson? I don't think that he's very scary for a guy like Geno Atkins. I don't think any of these interior guys are. You're right, and Geno's giving Marshall Yonda trouble, so... When you've got a guy like that, it's really you feel you have the advantage in almost every situation, especially with the depth the Bengals have and the rotation and the amount of guys they're bringing in. I love the rotation they had at D-Tackle this past week where everyone played. Four guys played, so everyone still remained fresh and looked fresh throughout. I think it's, it went a big or a long way in uh, why they were such such a good run-defending team in, in week one. I was looking at PFF grades also on that. 82 overall run defense grade. That's number three best in the league for the Bengals. And the defense was generally very good. We all knew that just from watching the game without seeing the grades. But there is an interesting matchup there with the tackles. And we'll talk about that a little bit more tomorrow. But strength of the Bengals is those edge rushers, at least in week one. Sam Hubbard was all world. Oh, yeah. Carl Lawson, we expect a lot from. But Joe Staley and Mike McGlinchey are very good. And obviously, Carlos Dunlap. I didn't even mention Carlos Dunlap there. 
He's still he very good. He had a sack. He had a great run stop. He's still long, and he's still Carlos Dunlap. Right. So it's going to be that guy they kick inside, though, right? Because yeah. you looked at it last week, and Dunlap got snaps inside. Hubbard got snaps yep. inside. Remember, we we heard that loss in May. They did not do that with him. They did kick Kerry Wynn inside. So who's going to be that other guy next to Atkins? And even Hubbard, when he was inside, wasn't as good as he was on the edge. And so can they get some can they generate some power or some pressure from that other spot if they can't that may be their chance to get the pass rush on uh jimmy garoppolo yeah i think it's going to have to come from the inside in terms of the pass rush we'll get into all that tomorrow i think i just wanted to highlight just how bad jimmy garoppolo was in week one he threw a pick six he was all over the place wasn't very accurate and all that with great pass blocking so that's a matchup that the bengals can look at and need to win in order to win the game, I think. George Kittle is going to get his, and if they can find a way to slow him down, great. I think they can make the 49ers one-dimensional if they can stop Seattle's run game the way they did. They should be able to do something similar, even against a slightly better offensive line in San Francisco. And then it comes down to George Kittle. When the Bengals have the ball, though, I am now officially scared of that defensive line. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was originally, and you were kind of like, ah, I think Seattle's good. But when you, you Coach Minnick was posting clips today, and I know you watch those. Uh, you go and look at some of the, you know, depth they have when guys like Eric Armstead and Solomon Thomas aren't even getting consistent snaps. You just go, man, they're deep, they're long. These guys are going to get their hands up on on the ball, and those edge guys are really going to take advantage. I mean, Bosa and D Ford, that's about as good as you can expect for facing edge defenders this year. And the Bengals' tackles are where they're weak. I feel much better about their interior guys right now yeah. in pass protection. So, uh, yeah, you're going in there, and Cordy Glenn's still in the con- concussion protocol. That is, again, they're going to have to scheme and get these these pockets moved and get Dalton a little bit more time. Yeah, Nick Bosa was an absolute terror in week one, and that's with only half a working ankle. He can't really move laterally right now, and he's just winning anyway. Did you see those few plays where he he wins right with his hand move and then really can't break down in space? He got James Winston to move from his launch point, but he's not getting the sack. He's still disrupting a lot of plays, but you can tell he couldn't break down. Yeah, if if his ankle was healthy, those do turn into sacks, I think. Even though James Winston is a little bit mobile back there, he's he's still a big guy. But Andy Dalton is not likely as mobile as James Winston and is not as willing to make shifty moves in the pocket. So... I think that some of those turn into sacks on Andy Dalton, too. They might not turn into the pick sixes that Jameis threw. And Jameis Winston threw two pick sixes, and that was the difference in the game. Oh, yeah. 31-17. I don't know if San Francisco's offense has it in them to really get this game going, but I also don't know if the Bengals can keep the ball moving against the San Francisco offense. We'll have to see if San Francisco borrows from the Seattle and I guess New England playbook on defense in terms of taking away the running game and if the Bengals have any answers for it. That's actually a question from our mailbag. That question comes from E. James at Skyline315, and he asks, so if the Bengals end up seeing another anti-run defense against the 49ers, how do you counter that schematically? Are you happy to keep throwing on every down until they adjust, or are there just some easy fixes to get a better second-level blocking going on to improve the run game? I think it's a little bit of both. I was on the 49ers podcast, Fourth and Gold, before we recorded tonight. They asked me essentially the same question. Are you happy for Andy Dalton to go back there and throw it 51 times again? And my answer was, Zach Taylor, I think, called plays according to the defense he was seeing, and it worked. 
Dalton was 35 for 51 last week, but he should have been much better. He had a few drop balls, a few batted balls, a few throwaways. You take those out of the equation, and he was like an 86% accurate quarterback, according to PFF last week, give or take. Really, really good stuff. Uh, And that includes a couple deep balls, too, in there that were accurate enough. Yeah, one dropped. Yep. Uh, One where Tyler Boyd falls down, and that wasn't an accurate throw, but... No, it was one where if he keeps his feet, he might catch it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that it's a little bit of both. There's an emphasis. I think that Zach Taylor and Jim Turner need to put on getting off of those combo blocks and getting to the second level. That was something that the Bengals didn't do very well against Seattle. And it wasn't because the combo blocks were occupied and had to, it seemed like it wasn't prioritized very well. And that was also true. I noticed on the jet sweep to Tyler Boyd that went for like three yards where C.J. Uzama and Farrell Cooper are double-teaming a corner, and it looks like Uzama, that corner is way, well out of the play. Uzama can release to the safety then, and then it's a big play for Tyler Boyd, but Uzama never comes off him, and the safety tackles Tyler Boyd for a three-yard gain. There's ample yeah. opportunity there for these guys to get their eyes downfield, get off their initial block, and get to the second level, and that's what we didn't see enough of. The other thing is, they're running a lot of run-pass option or package play kind of running where those perimeter guys aren't blocking at all. They're literally just running routes. And Andy chose to throw the ball on a lot of those because mm-hmm. of what Seattle was showing. So if you go out there with another 20 plays in your in your, in your offensive playbook that gives Dalton the option say, to say, hey, uh, these guys are loading the box, you throw the ball in this play. Well, then if they're going to load the box, you throw the ball 20 times. That's just how it works. You're not going to force it, and you know, you're not going to put your guys in disadvantaged situations like that. Uh, the one point I wanted to make uh, was – a little bit nerdy and, and analytical. And it, it's something that I really like recently. And if you follow Ben Baldwin on Twitter, he does a great job with this. And it's basically expected points. And it's just the history of the NFL, basically, especially the modern history of the teams that throw it the most and throw it with efficiency the most, score the most points, win the most games. It's basically how you can boil it down. So if you want Andy Dalton to throw 50 times, that's probably good because every time you run the ball, you're kind of actually like taking – uh, a fraction of a point off the board for what you're going to ultimately score in the game, if you think of it that way, because you're shortening the game. You're, um, you know, you're t- you're taking more plays to get down the field to put up points. But if you can throw the ball, throw it downfield. The Bengals did really well week one. If they can continue that, throw it, throw it 50 times. The times I want to run the ball, and the only times I really want to run the ball it, like heavy in a game is when Dalton's struggling. I want to have that back and the ability to run. For those games where you're just like, yeah, we're getting bad Andy today. Let's lean on this run game. Let's make this game close in the fourth quarter, and let's try and pull it out then. Because uh, I think that's why you run the ball. You run the ball to keep the game close. I think you throw the ball to win it. You run the ball also to ice the game. That's the only other time I want to see them run the ball. And I think they need Joe Mixon for that. So if he's out this week, it is the running back. This does seem to be an offense that's going to be willing to throw the ball a lot. But maybe if Joe Mixon is out, San Francisco comes into the game with a, okay, Andy, you beat us kind of mentality. Maybe they bait him. And that was Seattle's mentality, right? Pete Carroll pretty much alluded to it. And I think Andy Dalton did beat them. So if they get the same look from San Francisco, and it sounds like they will, according to Brian Peacock. We have Seattle, Pete Carroll, Disciples running that defense in San Francisco. And interestingly, on the offensive side of the ball in San Francisco, Kyle Shanahan is... Well, has a lot of similarities at the core of the offense to Zach Taylor. It's going to look a lot different, but at its core and at its roots, those those systems evolve from the same thing. We've got a lot of good questions today. We'll get back to those in just a minute. 
Before that, I want to acknowledge our excellent sponsor from Cincinnati, Abco Safety, a safety distributor located right at home in Bengal land. They're partnering with 3M to sponsor the Locked On Bengals podcast. And if you or your company purchase safety equipment, you should really give them a call because they will save you money on your safety budget. As we've talked about their website, www.abcosafety.com, will list all of their retail prices. But if you want to get that corporate pricing, you'll have to call. Joe, what are we looking at today? Well, I'm looking at something specific for me. I went in the tool section, and they have a 3M Cubitron 2 cut and grind wheel, which basically is a wheel that you don't have to swap out. You can cut and grind with it, which and multi-function uh, past that, which would really help me and uh, get a lot of jobs done at once. Saves you some time. Again, go check out their website at www.abcosafety.com, and keep in mind those are the retail prices. They can do better if you give them a call. 513-672-1818 and mention Locked On Bengals. If you found $100 on the street, would you pick it up or keep walking? Of course you'd take the money. So why do you keep picking winners and not betting on them? That's why I go to my bookie. It's fast, it's easy, and they pay when you win. Let's face it, where you're betting is just as important as who you're betting on. My bookie offers a variety of options depending on your style of betting. You can bet on games after kickoff if by the second half it looks like your bet is going to lose, you can take the other side and recoup your cash. If you're the kind of guy that likes to bet a little and win a lot, you can try a parlay. If all your picks come through, you'll multiply your winnings. No matter how you bet, the NFL season is the best time of year. Join now and MyBookie will double your first deposit. Just use promo code LOCKEDON to activate the offer. That's promo code LOCKEDON. Visit mybookie.ag today to play so you win and get paid. Jake, let's stay on the topic of running back since we just ended it right there and you talked about Joe Mixon and his health. And the fact is he hasn't carried the load or hasn't been healthy now two years in a row. Remember, it was week two, Thursday night, I believe, versus the Ravens where he got hurt last year and then ended up missing the following two games versus the Panthers and then the Falcons. So uh, we got a question here from Almighty Olmack. And he asks, given that Joe Mixon has only had one year of elite production and that he has yet to play a full 16-game season, what do you think the likelihood is or what would be the production for him? What would it have to be for him to have a case for holding out? I think Almighty here is saying that he doesn't think right now he has a strong leg to stand on in terms of he hasn't been productive and really only carried the load for, I mean, I'm sorry, he hasn't been healthy and really only carried the load for one year. I think this season does have a big impact on it, so I think Almighty Almack is fair in asking that question. Joe Mixon certainly believes and has a confidence in himself that he's one of the best running backs in the NFL, and last year when he was healthy, that was the case. Absolutely, you couldn't really argue against it, and he was one of the healthier backs, at least in the AFC last year. He was healthy enough to lead the AFC in rushing, despite perhaps some other guys that could have done it if they were still getting the kind of volume that they would have gotten if they were healthy. Right. So... I think he does have to stay healthy. I think the Bengals have to try to run the ball because if he ends up doing what he did yesterday for the whole season, that, I mean, obviously is quite an extreme. Right. But he needs to prove that he's still going to be a difference maker if he wants to have any sort of argument the way Le'Veon Bell did or Melvin Gordon did or Ezekiel Elliott. He doesn't have that argument yet. Right, and I think part of it is the point where I'm getting to of um, one is – I don't want to say talent. I want to say 
maybe generational talent is a better way to put it. It's kind of how you would do with quarterbacks, right? If you didn't have a great offensive line or maybe you had, had some weapons missing and you're trying to evaluate that quarterback in a vacuum, you would say, I want him to be able to function without having the very best around him, without having an A-plus O-line or, or two stud receivers. Now that's great to have, but you want to make sure that guy can still have good games or still carry a team without it. I kind of want to see Joe Mixon. He had a bad O-line last year. I think the running game might be a little bit worse from what we've seen so far this year through preseason in one game. Sure, it may turn around completely, but I do think Frank Pollock had a good scheme in terms of running last season. So let's see how how uh, Mixon does again with that. Of course, I'd like health, but if I think if you get 14 games out of a running back, you're happy with that every single year. I don't think 16 games is, is very um, is very likely for a lot of these guys. So 14 would be my goal. I would also say that for any running back in terms of production, I'm more impressed by receiving production. Now, again, I, of course, I just said a minute ago that I want my team to throw the ball because I think you get more points and, and more wins from it early, you know, obviously early in the season once you get in the fall. I mean, uh, winter and, and playoffs, it may be a little bit different. But my point is, I think a lot of running backs, and this is why running backs don't get paid, is uh, a lot of running backs can replace the production I think we've gotten from Joe Mixon so far on the ground. But I know Mixon can provide so much more as a receiver that if we ever unlock it or get to see it, like I'll pay Kamara, I'll pay McCaffrey, no question, because those guys are rare because I'm just naming two guys. And really, that's about it right now. You're paying Marshall Falk, and this is 15 years ago. But my point stands that these guys that are elite pass catchers that really are dynamic all over the field, I think those are the guys I'm way more inclined to pay. Did you know Christian McCaffrey played 100% of Carolina snaps in week one? Man, and he was considered kind of small. Remember that? I do. It's just crazy. Absolutely mind-blowing to see a running back play 100% of his team snaps in this day I was I was reading Josh Norris's timeline. He's a big draft guy. He, uh, But he's a Panthers fan. He grew up in, in Carolina. And he was talking about how they keep getting these power backs behind McCaffrey Kind of how remember how the Bengals are doing this. They like to have one power back, one one kind of shifty back like Bernard, and it was hard to switch them. They Bengals always struggled switching those guys in and out because it was way too obvious to what you were doing. He said the Panthers can't get these power guys in because they can't do what McCaffrey does on the base um, offense. So you, what he, what he proposed is what he thinks they should be doing is getting a guy that can be a scat back behind McCaffrey. Sure, you got two smaller scat back guys, but when you put them together, you don't have to you know. You don't have to worry about pulling McCaffrey out and changing your offense completely. So, I know we got got on a tangent, got off base there, but uh, that's it for me for that answer. You got a question here, Jake? For us? I think I think that's a really clever idea that Josh Norris has. And yes, I do. Staying on the same theme, Ben Grant, who is a football coach, according yeah, to a conversation man. I had with him, makes a couple declarations before asking us a question. Okay. Fact. This new offensive system relies heavily on there being space over the middle created by play action. Fact. Right. We can't run the ball. Question. What's the fewest number of running plays we can call before play action? And in turn, the whole system loses its effectiveness. And there's a lot of literature on this topic that I know you've read. Yeah, there is, because uh, there's been a lot lately. As the NFL has exploded, really, with play action again. I'm sure it was a big thing back when teams were running tight and heavy and running the ball a lot in the 80s, 70s, and before that. But um, lately, it's been every single year, the, the percentage of play action has grown every year in the last, I think it was six or seven years. PFF Mike uh, posted this. And it makes sense, because the effectiveness of it, the uh, yards per play of it, the completion percentage, the expected points off play action is 
hands down the best way to have a productive offense right now, create big plays and move the ball down the field to score. So teams are using it. And, and I think it works and it works no matter what, because you look at these also, you also look at these numbers that'll go back 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, and they'll look at good running teams or a team that's having a good game versus a team that's having a poor game running. Like let's say the Bengals, right? The last week, they still use play action a whole bunch, 35% of the time. And they couldn't run for anything. So why was it working? Well, here's why it works, because the linebackers are still reading run first. They're still reading the, the action of the running backs and the action of the of the offensive linemen and saying it's a run. I, I at least have to hold my water, hold my ground or take a step up at the, you know, at, at most, maybe two steps. It still freezes them. So play action still works. Irregardless of how well the run game's doing. Now, I do think Ben makes a good point, And Ben knows this. He's asking kind of, I think, uh, already knowing the answer. But. I do think there is a certain level uh, or at least a waterline of saying, okay, you can't go out there and run the ball zero times or run the ball five times the previous week because in game planning, you would tell your defenders, guys, don't even worry about the run. I don't care if they run it and get 10 yards. You got to hold your water. You got to take two steps back before two, one step forward. You know, outfielder rules on fly balls. And, and I think you can fix your linebackers a little bit there and not be so susceptible to the play action. But I do think if you can have you know, if you're running it 10 to 15 times a game, which seems to be the minimum for anyone, it's going to have effectiveness whether or not you can actually run the ball. And we'll have to see how the 49ers react to what the Bengals put on tape in week one. They'll be the first opponent that has a chance to do so. We'll see how they defend the run if they come out the same way Seattle did. And we'll see if they're more more disciplined, really, against the play-action game. Seattle and Bobby Wagner, we talked about, best linebacker in the NFL. He's still biting on play-action, and he still did all week. So it's just something yeah. that is instinctive to linebackers and if they stop reacting to play action i hope the bengals coaches are smart enough to attack those linebackers in another way we have time for one more question joe take your pick oh okay then there's kind of there's a couple good ones here i think jason had a good question where it was uh, is drake or patrick the worst contract on the team and we kind of a lot of people answered that so i'm not going to go with that one uh instead i'm going to go from aaron parker because he asks all the time it's from mem bengal and he says in the five two three four multiple look style that anarumo used last week what options might there be out of those kinds of formations and personnel to deal with a tight end like kittle do those looks allow them to shade coverage or even bracket Kittle if need be? And I do think the 49ers are going to try to keep the Bengals in that base 3-4-5-2, whatever you want to call it, defense. Maybe the Bengals react by instead going with an extra safety and paying sure. attention to Kittle instead of putting another linebacker on the field. And I think that that might be something they do try to do, especially if Jesse Bates and Clayton Fedgelum can get back to full participants in practice this week. If not, then they're going to be limited in their options because you're not going to ask Sam Harvard or Carl Lawson or Carlos Dunlap to take a few steps with Kittle before handing him off or bracketing him with a safety over the top. But I do think that they need to dedicate two people to knowing where George Kittle is on every play. They yep. might get in trouble if they split George Kittle out wide and try to get him on one-on-one matchups out there. If they're a man and they have to run Sean Williams out there with him or, or even Jesse Bates or a linebacker, that is not a matchup you want to see. Yeah, so that's I was exactly that's where I was going to go. If Kittle gets out into the slot or out wider, sometimes in the backfield, that's a bad situation for the Bengals. But if he's on the line and the Bengals go with five defensive linemen, where well, you're going to put a D lineman right over top of Kittle, and what that's going to do is slow him down or knock him off his route a little bit, and just he's going to have to get back into his position, which can just throw things off just a little. So 
you it's kind of like bump and run for the defense on a tight end by putting a, a, a defensive lineman over him. So I do think there are ways to handle that. I've got a film breakdown coming out of what the Bengals did this past week against Seattle. And I basically say in that review that it's five defensive linemen. They're not outside linebackers, how you see them listed in Madden or even yeah. on TV or anything. I mean, whenever a guy's released like Justin Houston from the Chiefs, outside linebacker Justin Houston released, you get a bunch of people, Bengals fans, can we use them? We need linebacker help. And I always respond with, he's not a linebacker. I wish they wouldn't do that stuff. Sam Hubbard, we, Carlos Dunlap, Carl Lawson, we know they're not linebackers. They're defensive ends for all yeah. intents and purposes, even if they even if they drop into coverage three or four times. So that's not going to help them. Those guys aren't going to help them in coverage. But I think having an extra D lineman in front of them or on top of Kittle could help. George Kittle in week one took 49 of his 61 snaps in line, meaning he was lined up beside the tackle or another tight end. He took six snaps from the slot, five snaps out wide, and one lined up at fullback. So we'll have to see if the 49ers do anything different this week. If he's in line, maybe they get a chance to disrupt him at the line of scrimmage with some of the Bengals' long and talented defensive ends. That's going to do it for this episode of the Lockdown Bengals podcast. We'll take some more of your questions tomorrow, especially as they pertain to the San Francisco matchup, and we'll get into that matchup in a little bit more detail. One other thing, Jeff Driscoll was waived with an injury settlement today. We didn't get to say that. So as we're closing out, goodbye, Jeff Driscoll. Thank you for the five games last year. Best of luck, Jeff. Until next time, Bengals fans, have a good one.